Hello, and welcome to Lou Harry Gets Real, a podcast about arts, culture, play, and stumbling forward through life. I'm Jim Ansaldo, your announcer and co-host for this evening, and I am thrilled to welcome you to the first anniversary episode of this experiment in conversation and music. Yes. Yes. Recorded live from the beautiful Oxford room of the Aristocrat Pub. Our guests tonight are Shannon Forsell, actress, singer, and CEO of The Cabaret, singer, songwriter, Joshua Powell, plus all the good folks who have filled the Oxford room tonight. Give yourselves a round of applause. Good folks. Great to have you here. Now, please welcome your host, the editor of Quill, the magazine of the Society of Professional Journalists, the author of the new book, The Little Book of Misquotations, and a guy that has been published in both This Old House and Cartoon Network Magazine, your host, Lou Harry. Thank you. Thank you, hello, and thanks for coming out to The Aristocrat tonight, or tuning into the podcast. Do you tune into a podcast? I do, I try to. Tune in is the right word? I don't know if I was dating myself there or not. I'm usually driving, so sometimes I can't. There you go, you have to stick with one thing when you're driving, that's a good thing. Uh, On today's show, we have three different worlds of music kind of coming together. Uh, Some of you may already know our musical guest, Joshua Powell, who has created a unique sort of folk mysticism in his haunting, beautiful music. Um, and who we've been wanting to get on the show for about oh, a year now. So I'm thrilled that he's here. Uh, Shannon Forcell, our interview guest, not only has played leads in musicals and charmed audiences with our cabaret act, but she's also taken an Indianapolis arts company in danger of disappearing and transforming it into one of the city's shining lights here in Indianapolis, the cabaret, which recently opened its own theater presenting top cabaret artists from around the world, as well as other programming. And there's my co-host, Jim Saldo. Uh, who has been an inspiration to me, not just for his good work, but for his attitude he brings to his work. Among other things, Jim incorporates spontaneous music into his improvisational projects. And then there's me. (laughs) A guy with no musical talent whatsoever, who is still stunned that he gets to hang out with people such as these. See, I'm just a kid from Wildwood, New Jersey, a honky-tonk shore town that I've referenced many times on this show. I, I learned about music from the AM radio, from 8-track tapes, from the Columbia Record and Tape Club, 10 albums for a dime, and from a girl who quoted Dylan to me as a way of breaking up. (laughs) Yeah, I'll see you in the sky above in the tall grass and the ones I love, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I tried reading Rolling Stone and Cream magazines, but they were kind of beyond me. Instead, I learned about music from Mad Magazine where the writers would often offer a parody lyric, you know, sung to the tune of whatever. And a common culture was kind of assumed. I was supposed to know these songs. I figured I needed to know them. Uh, And that's sort of where I picked up some of my music. But without the benefit of Spotify, I listened and I tried to figure out what I liked, gravitating to an odd combination of folk music and Broadway with the obligatory Springsteen factored in. Um, this was all before Born to Run, probably. Now, actual musicians, though, seemed a world away. Musicians were the people whose pictures were airbrushed onto the t-shirts I sold. They weren't people that I knew. Creating something from nothing, musicians, filmmakers, theater people, visual artists, even radio people seemed to belong to a different species. People who created things were a different breed from me. After all, I was just this guy from Wildwood. Now, I don't believe in signs, 
but I do believe in wonders, and I relish coincidence. A year ago, I was driving here nervous about what would be the first of these podcasts. To give a little of the backstory, a few months earlier, I had been a guest on Dan Wakefield's podcast and was surprised to hear that it was going to be his last here at The Aristocrat as he moved on to other projects. Producer Patrick Chastain, liking how things went that evening, asked me if I'd be interested not in taking over Dan's podcast, but in creating something different here at The Aristocrat. A few months of discussion and planning led to what was going to be that first show. Now, here's what I didn't tell my producer. Like many people in the arts, I spend a lot of time thinking and hoping that someone doesn't find out that I'm a fraud, that I don't deserve a platform, that I don't deserve to be heard. Driving here for that first show, I flash back to a night back in my hometown, Wildwood, New Jersey, again, population next to nothing, at least in the winter. One day I was asked by a friend to fill in on his weekly radio show on WCMC AM while he was out of town. Just play records you like for an hour, he said, and talk a little in between. I can't remember if I was a freshman or a sophomore in high school at the time. The records I chose were an odd mix. If memory serves, I dropped some Arlo Guthrie and Phil Oakes and maybe some Dave Bromberg. Clearly, I wasn't thinking about ratings. The music was a relief, though, because in between songs, I froze. I didn't have anything to say, and I didn't have the confidence to fake it. Now, I'm sure nobody was listening, but I was embarrassed nonetheless. What the hell was a schlub like me doing with a microphone in front of him talking to strangers? So about 40 years or so later, I'm on my way to the aristocrat for the first podcast a year ago. And I tried to clear my head by listening to the Broadway channel on Sirius XM, satellite radio. And on comes the absolutely right song. It's a tune, actually, part song, part monologue from a musical you probably never heard of called Now Hear This by Jeff Bowen, Hunter Bell, and Susan Blackwell. The piece is called Golden Palace. In it, a woman talks about her vision of where arts happen. She says, sings, the Golden Palace is located just over the horizon. You can't see it, but it's up there in a high up, out of reach, top of the world place. There inside are scientists and mathematicians destined to lead the way. There inside are novelists and fine musicians building great works of art. She goes on. The Golden Palace is where the beautiful people and the great thinkers of this and previous generations convened to bask in each other's brilliance and to create all the great works of art. It's all going down in the Golden Palace. Michelangelo's David, To Kill a Mockingbird, The X-Men, yes, great work, worthy work. And the people that populate that place and pump out those important paintings and poems and pieces are deeply intelligent, stunning, clean, privileged people. There's no room in the Golden Palace for girls like me, she says, girls who come from what I come from. I parked the car out front across the street and I kept the radio on. Near the end of the Golden Palace, the woman says, I see my hands resting on the keyboard of my laptop. I look past my hands and the keyboard. I see through the panes of my studio window out into the sharp winter woods. She says, I'm typing this sentence at the McDowell Artist Colony in Petersboro, New Hampshire, where I've been granted a residency to work alongside some of the greatest artists and writers on the planet to write the words you are listening to right now. She says, there is a golden palace. It's a Chinese restaurant located at 321 Nashaw Street in Milford, New Hampshire. It's not over the horizon. It's not out of reach. The golden palace is anywhere we make it. It's anywhere we make anything we want to make. And there is room for all of us. 
illiterate boys and poets that they become, awkward girls with big faces and big feet and strange ideas. We all belong here. My fingers begin to move to pluck letters to arrange them in order. Now, it takes a lot to convince a guy from Wildwood that he belongs in a place where people think and care about music and poetry and ideas that aren't purely utilitarian. Over the past year, it has been an honor, a pleasure, and a kick talking to these people that I've talked to and listening to the people I've listened to on this podcast in the past year. And honestly, we couldn't do it without the generosity of the aristocrat and you, the live and paying audience. I'm still not convinced that I deserve to be in this golden palace, but it's a beautiful place. And the people I get to hang out with are pretty damn amazing. I appreciate that privilege. And with your grace, I look forward to another exciting year. P.S. On the way here, I once again was listening to Sirius XM's Broadway channel. This time, playing as I was driving up, was I Feel Pretty from West Side Story. <laughs> like I said, I don't believe in signs. I'm so glad that, that Jim and Saldo agreed to co-host this episode of the show. I've known Jim as an improvisational performer for quite some time. Not only is he a regular at CSZ Indianapolis for comedy sports and other shows and created shows for the Indie Fringe Festival, but he's also the founder and co-director of Camp Yes And, an improv summer camp for teens on the autism spectrum. He's also a PhD research scholar at Indiana University. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Lou. <laughs> I wonder how you fell into the improv world. Oh, boy. Um, I took an intro to theater course as a, in my second freshman year of college <laughs> and uh, <laughs> had a great teacher that I really connected with that kind of helped to open up that world to me. And then six months later, I was walking in downtown New Haven, Connecticut, and I saw a small black box theater and recognized it as the one where my instructor was an artistic director. And there was a sign on the door that said improv auditions. And I think I was thinking evening at the improv, the uh -huh. stand-up uh, show that was on after Saturday Night Live. Which had like no improv in it. No improv no in it. Um, and walked in and auditioned and got cast into a show and my first improv class simultaneously wow. and just fell in love with it. What are, what are some things, I mean, when you're pulling audience suggestions, what are the things you'd never want to hear again? Um, you know, there are a lot of like uh, standard things like maybe the Eiffel Tower, if we ask for a landmark, or uh, Mount Rushmore, things like that. that um, especially if it's in a game where I'm trying to communicate that maybe to a team member and they have to guess it. And that's just because it's not super challenging for us having it done, done it so many times. So we want to stay challenged. And then other than that, it's just something that's not gross. <laughs> Whether that's like uh, at someone else's expense because mm -hmm. of their identity or right. um, just not really reflective of somebody's actual experience. Because mm -hmm. that's what we're trying to do in improv is like connect my experience to your experience and create something we've never seen before. As opposed to, I mean, is it often, you know, an audience member trying to be funny or impress their friends with yeah. how funny they are? Yeah, and I don't want to have to try to be funny either because like <laughs> my children will tell you that doesn't fly. Uh, so yeah, it's that co-creation. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're used to seeing uh, improv as entertainment, thanks to things like comedy sports and, mm -hmm. and whose line is it anyway and things like that. How does that translate? Yeah. I know you work in, with the business community, with teaching, with, yeah. your, with your camp. How does that translate into other benefits besides, hey, they saw something unique and they had a good time? Yeah, I mean, at its core, improv is what I think of as a technology for communi uh, communication and connecting people across differences. Uh, so if you go back to kind of the beginning of American improv with Viola Spolin, 
Uh, she was a social worker, early childhood educator, hired to produce public theater during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. And she had groups of immigrants that didn't speak the same language or share the same culture, and she had to get them together to co-create and collaborate. And so she created these improv games um, from stuff that she was taught and experience working with little kids. So in essence, improv was always a means for collaboration and connection, and it became a form of theater. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we're doing now in the applied improv world is kind of full circle back to that, using it as a technology. Mm -hmm. I was, you mentioned Spolin. I was in LA on my shattering odyssey of self-discovery hitchhike across the country <laughs> around college time. Thanks, Bob Dylan. And, there, no, and, and, and I, one of the things I went to was this, uh, yeah, because I was still recovering from yeah, that incident. I would be. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I went in and for like a $5 ticket, I went to some high school gymnasium and there was Viola Spolin running, oh, like wow. running, well, I didn't know it was going to be her. It was Sills and Company, her son, Paul mm -hmm. Sills. Yeah. Uh, I was one of the Second City, early Second City people and all that. And they were doing improv games and she was just sitting in the back by the bench. And during the intermission, all of the performers who were there like gathered around her like, you know, <laughs> this was, you know, the, the center of the universe. These were people doing improv, again, for a $5 ticket. It was Valerie Harper. It was mm. uh, Avery Schreiber, mm. Severin Darden, uh, Richard Libertini. Wow. Um, uh, just amazing group of people. And to see them sort of humbled by yeah. their teacher. Yeah. That even, you know, performers in their 50s, they must have been in their 50s, 60s at the time, still yeah. were there to learn stuff. How much of it yeah. is that sort of learning that continual learning process as well. It, it, you know, it's a lot of that. Um, and to, to kind of go back and answer your question a little bit more, so in, in my field of education, like the most valuable thing that I, as a teacher, can know about you is your prior knowledge and experience. And my, how much I have in my banking account. Yeah, so that helps a lot. Yeah, that's the business <laughs> side of things. Um, but yeah, it, so if I can find out about, I can create an appropriately challenging lesson for you if I have a good idea of what you already know mm. and can do. And so, um, so it's that kind of continual learning process that teachers and students engage in uh, to move forward. Yeah. Tell us about, a little bit about Camp Yes End uh -huh. and, and where that came from and what effect you see on your students. Uh, in 2014, I went to a conference in Austin, Texas that was the Applied Improvisation Network Conference and met a woman who's a social worker and therapist who is teaching improv classes for teens on the spectrum in Austin and uh, was just uh, astounded by her work. Just uh, the handout alone I sent to maybe 25 people, um, which I rarely do at conferences, um, and just said, I, I want to figure out how to get you to Indiana. And she was excited to talk about that. So we started talking about a summer camp format because she could only be here for a little while. And then my background is in teacher education. So I started thinking, you know, if we can involve teachers and help them learn how to use these techniques that are um, powerful for working with these kids, that's the way we'll scale up and have impact because, you know, they're working with hundreds of kids a year. Um, so that's kind of how the idea was born. And how many years has the program been going on? We just finished our fifth year. Um, our farthest traveler award this year was a woman from the Philippines who came uh, to uh, Indiana to learn this stuff. And we've had all kinds of folks from all over the country. Uh, and I just love it. Like people who've never done improv before, they'll leave camp after you know, five days and I'll get an email the next Monday saying, hey, I tried this and here's how it went and I created this variation. And, mm -hmm. um, and you, you don't get that in professional development for teachers. Like it's rare that people 
will put things into place because they never actually get to see it or try it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, there seem to be a lot of rules involved. And yeah. Sometimes there seems to be an assumption that if somebody is good at one kind of performance, they're automatically good at another. But I hear so many people from the music world, from even the, the straight up acting world and musical theater world say, oh my God, I could never do improv. I'd be terrified to do improv. What's sort of differences in the skill set required? And um, is it just a matter of getting past certain barriers? I mean, yeah, I think it is doing enough reps that you can quiet down the editor in your head that says, no, your ideas are terrible, you're stupid, yeah. people hate you. Uh, just me? I don't... Uh, yeah, so if you, can, if, you can, <laughs> if you can quiet down that voice and just let your ideas come through. And then, you know, in improv, we call them teams. So I always have uh, team members with me that are going to help take that thing and turn it into a story. One of my early experiences with improv was maybe not with improv. I was, I was doing stand-up comedy at the time, and I, an improv group wanted me to open for them to flesh out their show longer. Mm. And the first time I, I opened for them, things went great, and I watched their show, and I laughed and had a good time. Second time I did the show, I did my, my stuff off the top, and then I saw that they were doing pretty much the exact same things they were doing the previous time. And I was thinking, that's not no. improv. No. Now, do you see some of that cheating that happens? Um, I don't see it a lot, and maybe that's because I, I work, you know, myself included, mostly with people that are doing it for the love of it, uh -huh. <laughs> not for the uh, right. massive paychecks that we get. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't see a lot of that. Um, maybe in like new students who don't always mm -hmm. know the difference between, let's say, improv or stand-up or sketch uh, or sketch, yeah, those kinds of things where it's. Um, you know, the more I learn improv, the more it's about what my scene partner needs or what the story needs and not about what my idea is, mm -hmm. uh, which is very freeing for me, but um, that's different than folks who really want to craft a piece. Yeah. And those other fields are wonderful for that. Yeah, I've seen some I of that where people leave, if you leave a stand-up comedy show, you might remember like five or six of the really funny punchlines, mm -hmm. but you could have a great time at an improv show and then go home and try to tell your friend, spouse, partner about yeah. it, and it's harder to articulate yeah. why it was good. Yeah, and it, you know, in an increasingly virtual world, it's <laughs> like the you had to be there experiences are really precious, mm -hmm. at least for me, yeah. so I love doing it. Uh, Jim's gonna play a little bit later yeah. uh, with you, so we'll, we're gonna uh, have a little bit of improv fun a little later. Now though, I would like to introduce you to somebody many of you probably already know, many of you listeners may not. Shannon Forcell, come on up. Shannon, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled to have Shannon on the show. In large part because I love talking with her about her work and about cabaret music. Whenever we get together, even if it's like passing each other on the street, it ends up stopping and turning into a 10-minute conversation. Uh, she was one of the first named talents that I became aware of when I moved to Indianapolis in the mid-90s. Um, and since then, she has helped transform the city's nightlife through the creation of the cabaret uh, bringing world-class talent to the city. A graduate of DePaul University, correct? Yes. Uh, and a former runner-up for Miss Indiana. Of course she won the talent competition, which, as we all know, is the only one that matters. Um, I want to jump in about that. So I won the talent and the swimsuit competition. Oh, oh, which, oh. Like, so, but no, no, here's what's funny about that. Not because, because I laughed when I won the swimsuit competition, and now I would pray for those days again. But... Um, <laughs> So it had to, the reason I didn't win had to be my personality. Oh, that's Because, right. you know, I, yeah, that I won everything were else. They, were they asking you tough questions at the time about world affairs? Probably. Probably. Yeah. That could yeah. have been a piece of, Let's talk a little bit about, first about the evolution 
of this organization, there was, for those of you uh, listening or, or haven't been here for a while, there was a thing called the American Cabaret Theater. Mm-hmm. And that was probably one of the, was that one of the first or one of the only places you were performing professionally mm-hmm. at the time? I was in almost every show from 1990 to 2000. Wow. And was, this was a yeah. professional company here in Indianapolis mm-hmm. uh, at a wonderful venue at the Athenaeum. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wonderful venue most of the time, although right. it depends if Polka Boy was playing in the beer garden. Someone was in the beer garden. In which case, you would you heard pay both once shows. for a ticket and yeah, you get both shows. Yeah, two for one show. <laughs> Just like at the same time. Um, American Cabaret Theater did a lot of, got the founder of it hated when I would call it, but did musical yeah. reviews yeah, yeah. largely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're going to do the songs of Gershwin this right. time. We're going to just talk about how those shows were structured when you first started working. So they were, like you said, they were, they were usually around a theme. And, and some you know, cabaret does have a theme to it, mm-hmm. and it gives you a structure for the show. So they were a much larger scale with 10 folks as opposed to a single person performing mm-hmm. or just a couple people performing. And they had these large um, screens that they did slides that would kind of have commentary uh, about the song so that there were sort of mm-hmm. some layers to it right. as well. Uh, it was a great place to you know, get your learn your craft and work really hard all get work mm-hmm. all the time doing it so yeah it, i would i would agree that it was a music review musical mm-hmm. review there were much bigger shows and what what kind of music did you find yourself gravitating to a certain song that you said oh yeah that's that's something that speaks to me and others you probably had to do that kind of didn't well what did you find yourself attracted to you know what? I just I love everything. I I can find Gregorian a, a chant, connection. Yeah. So, yeah, right. <laughs> I usually like music that's you know about life or about our connection to each other. And and of course, I mean, but but there are other great songs that are completely shallow and just take you away from the world, and you love that too. You know, um, but the best cabaret songs are certainly about our humanity, and those are the the songs that always appealed to me, r- recognizing the importance of. Uh, life and time and what matters it, those th- always I like that kind of stuff. Did you grow up uh, exposed <laughs> to that kind of music or a wider My range? dad was a great lover of all kinds of music um, we didn't have a lot in common my dad is a man's man and was an you know Olympic swimmer and I have like zero athletic bones mm-hmm. in my body which was why I was super excited to read this week that um, show choir is now a PE like counts for PE which like if that would have happened yeah. in my day like sheesh that was like man you know <laughs> so, uh, but he had a great love of a lot of different styles of music and he liked music that he liked great songwriters mm. and so he liked music that had a little bite to it or some irony to it uh, and so he introduced me to a lot of music, and I so, had that in common with him. So American Cabaret Theater kind of started to do book musicals, mm-hmm. and you were cast in leads in many of those. I was, yes. I was Evita and Sally Bowles. Mm-hmm. So two, not in the same show. Two sort of, <laughs> shit, yeah, not in the same show. <laughs> two chicks that slept around. I don't know what that means, but, you know. Sometimes. Well, that, lead, well <laughs> that leads us to, briefly, your uh, IMDb credit where you are listed uh, in a short called The Magnificent Seven as prostitute? <laughs> oh my God, I'm always a prostitute. I'm not anymore. Well, Nobody that, wants is, it anymore. That wouldn't be The Magnificent Seven that we know well. Would it be? That? No, was that? that was, uh, so, you know, as you do when you're a young person and you're trying to get work, I did commercial uh, work. Uh-huh. So it was like a Toyota. <laughs> I think it was Toyota. It was like a commercial industrial film okay. and the theme was Magnificent Seven. So it's funny because that credit comes up and it's yeah. like a 
terrible, yeah. like, you know, I don't remember commercial you with piece. And exactly, okay. yeah. Has there been a critical time in life when you uh, led someone to believe that it was the Magnificent Seven? <laughs> Just to kind of open it oh, I should have. <laughs> yeah. No, it was absolutely nothing. No, I always say about myself, and I, have, I don't care at all about this, because I, I always say I'm a star in Indiana and parts of Illinois. Not Chicago, but other parts of Illinois. <laughs> no. Nobody knows who I am. When, did, when were you doing work... Uh, apart from American Cabaret Theater? So I did some work apart from it. Uh, I did some work at um, the IRT Cabaret um, and Beef and Boards. I did stuff at Jazz Kitchen mm -hmm. and uh, so, some other projects as they would come up and some of my own individual work. Gotcha. Uh, but I was pretty busy at the cabaret, which was a gift. I mean, mm -hmm. when you're a young person to have be in every show is a is a gift that that's one thing that's hard for that when we became more of a national model it was sad for me that we weren't giving local performers as much work but hopefully we'll go back to some of that so that so american cabaret theater though hit some hard times it looked did. like it was going to disappear yes um how how involved were you at that time in trying to figure that out or did you sort of step in with the model for what it ended up becoming? No, I was hired, so they knew that they kind of had kind of lost their identity, so to speak, because Claude McNeil, who was their founder, who created the shows, and that was when um, I was in the show. So, so he retired, and then they did some book shows, they did some other stuff, they just couldn't kind of have the same kind of groove, and they, they, were, they were doing things that other people were doing, so they just didn't have an identity anymore. And so they hired me to say, how can we bring some of that old vibe back? And I was going to do a series a little bit like what we've just, what we do now. But mm -hmm. on my first day uh, that I was there, the executive director quit. Um, not because of me, I hadn't been there long enough for that yet. But um, <laughs> he, I think because he knew the writing was on the wall. And I think he was kind of just waiting until I got there and was like, see, ya, here you go. <laughs> so somehow um, the board said, what are we going to do? do now we need to decide are we going to shut our doors or do something else and do you have any ideas and mm -hmm. I had already left my other job so mm -hmm. they said do you want to help us and um, so that was either the dumbest or smartest thing I ever <laughs> did and uh, so we just brainstormed uh, you know what this was when the economy was tanking so not it wasn't just the cabaret you know the rent lease went up at the Athenaeum by t twice the amount mm -hmm. the economy was tanking all kinds of stars aligned for that to happen it wasn't just a failure of the organization per se uh, just a lot of things happened so we said what can we do uh, you know there had been a lot of commentary that the quality wasn't what maybe mm -hmm. it could be so we said what can we do that's um, raises the level of the artistic quality and is more sustainable. And that's when we, I said, well, why don't we do cabaret as it really is, which is an, an intimate space, a small space, up close and personal, uh, which would be less cost, uh, a lot less overhead. And, and you could just take the same letterhead and just white out the American in the theater, <laughs> right, and you've exactly. got cabaret sitting right there. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. You look so, at those cost savings. <laughs> we did, I'm sure, do that at the first when we had no money. So, uh, right. yeah. And that intimacy probably is not just about the physical space here, no. right? The, Absolutely. The pieces you pick mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And that seems to connect back to what you were talking about in terms of the, the love for the word and the, right. the tone of the word that, that you learned. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah, because, you know, the shows that we have now are people that are big stars, but it's the be them being them, yeah. not them being a big artist. So you're they're down to the core of who they are and showing all their vulnerabilities and our common humanity and picking pieces that 
they want to do to express who they are. Like you said, you know, what do they have to say? What do they want to say? This is their chance to say, what do I want to say? Mm. Uh, and, and what do I want to put out there and share with people? I think those are the kinds of experiences that keep people in the game too. Right. As rough as like the, mm -hmm. any creative business can be. Yeah. As you're screening possible acts for the cabaret as it stands now, are there people who you find who simply have nothing to say? I mean, yes. are, are there acts that just there kind are, of go, yeah. well, that was a song after a song after a song? Sure, and there's a lot of, of um, artists that don't want that to mm -hmm. be exposed to that kind of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's very hard um, to be exposed. It's, so it's, a, it's an art form where you have to... You have to be okay. It's it. I was when you were talking about improvisation. I was thinking it is kind of a little bit like that too, yeah. because there isn't a fourth wall in cabaret, and things will happen. It is live, mm -hmm. and you don't know what the audience is going to be like. So, so there are a lot of things that happen even in a show that's planned that become mm -hmm. improvisational, and um, but I just like. Um, just people will, one minute I'll be laughing, and the next minute they'll just punch me in the gut with something that is just stunning. Yeah. Um, and every show is very different because it's all about that person's story. You also talk about how in Cabaret, the room is a character usually it in it. And Absolutely. I know you've gone through about four venues yeah. now as you've been with <laughs> Temporary Space and then um, as the new space is built. Tell me what... Uh, having the opportunity to build this space from nothing. Tell me a little bit about what was there and what you and your team saw that it could be and what elements were chosen that we might not necessarily think about. We know there needs to be a stage. We know there needs yeah. to be seats. What are the other questions that you asked yourself? Yeah, you know, our very we had the good, I mean, in a way, when you're in a lot of different rooms, you can find out what's great about each one of those rooms. Our favorite room was the very first room we were mm -hmm. in, which folks here what might know as Chef Joseph's. Uh, it was became Chef Joseph's. The connoisseur um, room. Right? Connoisseur room. And it was much a room that was around this kind of size because uh, it was really, really close and personal. Our room mm -hmm. now is about 200 seats. That was around 90 seats. I loved it. It was just, mm -hmm. you know close up and they're right there. And mm -hmm. to see that kind of magic right in front of you is, is something you can't really describe. So uh, that, But when you're on this side of the room and you have to go to the restroom in the middle of a ballad, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that can be kind of bad. Magic. Yeah, that can be yeah. bad. Yeah. Um, magic. That was my favorite room because I, was just, I really loved that. Um, the warmth of that room, uh, then the uh, Columbia Club room, uh, the Crystal Terrace was just a stunning room, mm. much more like rooms in New York that, with the backdrop of the city right behind it. Um, very, very stunning, uh, more Cafe Carlisle kind of feeling. Uh, and this room, we tried to take a little bit of all of those rooms. Um, we needed to have more seats so we couldn't be as small as we would like to be. Right. And we couldn't afford to do it, really. You can't afford to have those kind of stars in 90 seats. Um, so we tried to just take, you know, we liked there to be a little bit of glamour, you mm -hmm. know, with it um, to feel very kind of New York, like you're bringing some New York here mm -hmm. um, to Indianapolis. And that was the feeling we wanted is people to feel like they were, we were bringing New York to Indianapolis. And not any former roller rink. Right? right. And gay bar. Oh, really? Yeah. Not at the same time. Not at the same time. <laughs> okay. I don't think at the same time, Which, no. if you want a concept, the same there time. it is right there. <laughs> I mean... They were rolling. <laughs> yeah. What are what are other elements that, that you think make a good cabaret show? When do you sort of see an act perform there and exhale and go, that worked? And when do you go, you know what? It could have been something was missing. Connection. Mm -hmm. People that can connect with other people that aren't afraid to connect with other people that will go deep and connect with other people and talk to the audience, engage the audience. Um, 
those are always the best shows and, mm. and our people have gotten really used to that so when an artist comes and they do a little more concert style or phone it in a little more our audience gets kind of mad mm. like hey we wanted something from you when it you sounds over rehearsed you mean that when the conversation sounds over rehearsed yeah, when they're not when... sharing they're only sharing the surface of themselves they're not mm -hmm. sharing the rawness of themselves mm. And that's what we kind of want to see. We want to see the real person, not the Broadway shiny person. We want to mm -hmm. see that underneath of that. And um, when that's not there, people, what do you connect to? Right. You can't connect to that when someone's not being real. I would guess the part of putting a program like this together, what you've learned over the last 10 years, and are still learning maybe, is what the audience is willing to hear. Now, I would mm -hmm. guess that you know, if you, when you bring in Alan Cumming, people know that name and they know him but i would imagine a lot of the people you're bringing in there's a niche audience that knows right. that broadway star but they're not necessarily a household name right and i would imagine that a big part of your audience are people who just have faith that you're going to bring them somebody interesting yeah we're really blessed that people have faith in, in that that we've earned that trust i i think i hope um mm. because it is true i mean most people don't even know their names here why would we know their names so you yeah. have to say oh they were in hamilton oh they must be good they were in hamilton so right. you know nobody you know nobody knows the names of these people and mm. we don't have the kind of funds to be bringing lots of folks where you are going to if you know their name really well we're right. like lin-manuel miranda no right. then we're not going to be having <laughs> we're them not the seeing Liza. yeah <laughs> maybe when he's like sort of over the hill. We'll have <laughs> <laughs> Let's not hope for that. Like, yeah, we always say we can get them when they're on their way up or maybe slightly on their way down. So <laughs> so, what do you yeah. think creates that, that trust? Um, in terms of you said that the, the artists start to, to trust you, your team, your venue. We have to present, we had to be sure that we curated especially coming out of a, a, an organization that kind of was failing, we had to curate and so that we knew we were presenting really great stuff mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. The pressure was on all the time so that then there has to be a certain amount of time where people have come enough to know, oh, it'll be good. Mm -hmm. you know. So it's just it's a, it's a time factor and me giving them stuff hopefully that mm -hmm. they felt was meaningful on, and quality enough times that right. they'll, mm -hmm. they'll right. go with me. How much, I mean, when I've talked to uh, artistic directors of theater companies who say if they have a subscription season of eight plays, mm -hmm. like an audience might tolerate one or maybe yeah. <laughs> two that doesn't, that doesn't speak to them. Now, it may, yes. not, it may just be something that doesn't speak to them, or maybe something where the production hit the wall and didn't work. Mm -hmm. How much is your audience willing to say, you know what, I didn't particularly care for that performer, right. but I'll still come back? We're just now trying to figure that out, to tell you the truth, because, you know, when you're in a venue like the Columbia Club, <clears throat> you know, that's a very specific place. Mm -hmm. So we're not having the skivvies at the Columbia Club. Right. Do you know, um, naked, you know, people in their underwear aren't going to be singing at the Columbia Club. They're not going to let us keep that venue for a while. <laughs> so there were a lot of things that we couldn't take a chance on there. Mm -hmm. So we really had to do safe stuff there to maintain our ability right. to keep the space. And so we're just now able to start to... Um, mess around with it, mm. you know, and do things like the performance art of Megan Mullally's, right. you know, um, and to do the skivvies, which right. are, so the, because the umbrella of cabaret is really big. Right. Um, I remember early on you had, was it Shirley Knight? Is that who that was? Who was doing song? Sharon McKnight. Sharon McKnight. Yeah. Sharon, sorry about that. Yes. Shirley Knight would be very different. Uh, Sharon McKnight, who did yeah. a show. Um, the most offensive songs. Yeah. Song, yeah. <laughs> it, so, yeah How, did you like get that. much pushback from that? No, we didn't. Um, 
we didn't. She did that well enough that people understood the... I mean, if you're going to a show like that and you're offended easily, then shame on you. <laughs> right, you didn't read the, you like, didn't read the ticket. Yeah, that's, that's the name of the show. Right. Um, so we're just now trying to navigate what this room and the people now, our mm. audience, wants and um, will come with us on. And so some of it will take building a little bit of a newer audience, and we're doing some things just specifically to reach out to audiences we couldn't reach out to before. For instance? Uh, you know, a lot of folks would, were, would be super intimidated by the Columbia Club for a lot of reasons and historic reasons. And so, you know, if you're a woman or of color or young, there's a lots of, you know, mm -hmm. folks and a gay, you know, we had a huge gay audience, so they didn't care. But, um, <laughs> you know, um, that are more mm -hmm. open to that now and it, we can reach out and really play that up more. It we, felt like it feels like your club instead it's of us, being in yeah. somebody's private yeah. club that you're not a member of. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it's um, not a club now. It's accessible to everyone, no question. I think in going to the cabaret over the years and, and seeing a variety of shows, I've probably seen at least two dozen renditions of my funny Valentine, um, <laughs> which is often wonderful and reinterpretive and amazing. Are there uh, are there overdone songs that you wish uh, performers might avoid? Are there songs you've heard too many times? Oh, you know. No, no, and maybe it's because we have a variety of folks mm. that, and they're doing their own stuff that they're sort of known for. So there's not, we don't do as much Great American Songbook type shows. So maybe if we did more of that, I would notice that. So there's nothing that comes to my mind of, and everybody puts their unique take on it. So I, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know, Don't Rain on My Parade happens a lot, but <laughs> it's okay. How about in terms of structuring? Because <laughs> 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 you kind of got to be really good to do that song anyway, so, you know. For those listening at home, uh, Shannon's face did not make it seem like it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> seemed less okay. Yeah. Jim's going to do the audio face captioning. <laughs> she seems delighted right now by my comment. <laughs> um, in structuring a season, how much are you just at the mercy of other people's schedules if somebody has you know, a day off from a Broadway show versus, um, well, here are the acts I want to get. Wait a minute. These three that I want would all be back to back instead of spread out over the season. Could talk a little bit about the logistics of scheduling. Yeah, the logistics are definitely um, uh, tricky at times because you we want the people that are really current, which means they're doing things. Mm -hmm. So uh, Luckily, a lot of perform. So we really can't get an artist that's in a current show until after they've been in it six months. So once you hit the six mark, six month mark, they usually have an out. It's called an out. That means they can ask for a night off to do something um, else. So while so, somebody's, well, if audience in Indianapolis is enjoying this Broadway talent, somebody's walking into a theater in New York going, pissed off. Yeah, <laughs> they hate At us. At this evening's yeah. performance, yeah. the role usually played by <laughs> playing the role tonight. Yeah, yeah. We don't. So we don't have a lot of people. Idina Menzel's out, but Ruth Buzzy is in. So that, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Casey Levy, who's the star of Frozen. And she was just here, and yeah. So those people hated us. Okay. They didn't know they hated us. So, gotcha. so I, I yeah, would pay sometimes to see Ruth Buzzy in Frozen. Yeah, I, I would, would totally pay to see thing. Ruth Buzzy in Frozen. Yeah. 
yeah. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. So it, it depends. You know, we used to book as a question, like that's an interesting question that you ask because some people have said, why don't you just book a full year? And we used to do that and, it, and we would get a lot more cancellations of star, from stars mm -hmm. because they might get a show and are they going to take a Broadway show or come and do one night in Indianapolis? Right. So we would get canned immediately, you know. Right. So, or they get a movie that's yeah, they taper. Just, so okay. it's harder to have a long time out because mm -hmm. they are people that are in demand. So you're just doing it by season mm -hmm. now? Yeah. And fingers crossed on some fingers of that. Fingers crossed, right. right. Exactly. Um, who are some of the acts on the wish list? On the wish list? Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Would, there you I told go. You that. Okay. Uh, well, I can't tell you my wish list because my wish list is what I'm working on for next year. Oh, very good. So, very good. But Ruth Buzzy. Ruth Buzzy. Ruth Buzzy is yeah, now on good. my wish list. I didn't know she was, but now she is. Right. Put her with Joanne Worley and you got it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes, Double please. act. Oh. And I love and I love people telling me who they want to see. So people email me, you know, Jim, who would you like tell to me see? after the show who you want to see. If there are people you want to see, I'd love to like know who people want to see. Jim, I'm I'm going to hold out for Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, right. I'm not going to say it's impossible. How much time you got? Uh, <laughs> who knows? Right. Do any of us know? Well, right. that's one of the. But when Hamilton is coming to town, you are getting the Hamilton a piece of that. Cast, tell a little yeah. bit about that show because I think mm. it's really cool. When we usually here in Indianapolis. If a touring production comes into town, we get it for a week. So they're coming in, they're leaving as soon as the shows mm -hmm. are done. Occasionally we get a show that runs three or four weeks, like Hamilton coming here for the first time. So on one of their Mondays off... Mm -hmm. Yeah, on uh, December 9, on a Monday, they are going to just come to the cabaret, all the cast, and they're going to do what they want to do. Um, and all the money goes to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. So it's... It's the Hamilton cast not being Hamilton ca uh, that night and being themselves right. and uh, for a good cause. It sold out really quickly because anything that has Hamilton on it. And so we have two shows that are both already sold out. So, sir, if you wanted to see that. So if you get Margaret so, Hamilton, so that'll sell out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Medley. Right, yes. yes. That would be a good thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Shannon Forsell. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring her back. Uh, in the second half, because those here, those at home don't have these, unfortunately, but you have slips of paper on your table somewhere uh, where you can write down questions, uh, or you should at least. If not, I'll give you some paper during intermission. I'll write down any questions for anyone on the panel, and we'll address some of those uh, during the second half. Um, for now, though, let's hear some music. Uh, Joshua Powell's music has been described in the press as, quote, a crossroads of revival in the river, folk mysticism, and barroom-ready guitar-driven rock with conscience and existential wonder. I can't do better Jeez. than that. <laughs> what a review. He's played over 750 shows in 40 states, has been heard via Starbucks official store playlist. Oh my and on gosh. TV's The Fosters and Blood and Oil, please welcome Joshua Powell. up all those accomplishments and I actually believe you. Like, oh wow, I've done some stuff. Thank you for having me, y'all. This is a song from my band's uh, new record. That record's called Psychotropic and the song is called Spirit of the Trailer Park. Washboard with briar 
depth with this cast up here. I'll tell you what, uh, it's so interesting. I love, I was just having this discussion outside of one of our frequent dive bar haunts just last evening, telling a friend how um, I'd gotten a little hoity-toity in my youth about how serious I was about music and about 
approaches to artistry because I had a friend uh, who was in a, a similarly geared indie sort of rock band and, and this friend would invest a ton of money into making a really cathartic emotional record and then play one show off of it and then not really do anything again for three years and I was just so frustrated by that because it, it costs so much money to make a record and it, it, it takes you know and for me it's not emotionally cathartic to make for me I mean uh, I, it's work it's grit it's sweat it's not I don't I, I, I got all of the songs that I had in me about girls that hurt my feelings out <laughs> yarn <laughs> and I don't write about feelings anymore like I'm an ideas man <laughs> <laughs> so I'm out here trying to apply this gritty blue-collar Midwestern ethos to serious abstract music about ideas <laughs> and play a ton of shows and then you know, and still not have money to make a record. <laughs> but the beautiful thing about art that you learn when you get older and you open your mind and, and you realize how many more things that you like that you thought you didn't like when you learn to take them on their own um, on their own grounds it goes the other way with how you approach the art and so I know that um, my way of doing music is not the right way of doing music and neither was his there isn't and uh, so to hear from you all in these such different universes of the same thing that we all love it's a really beautiful experience so thank you for having me on the panel today yeah. I'm gonna share uh, my band's newest song with you now uh, we were Fortunately, recipients of a grant um, from Fourth Sunday Music Company. Uh, that is Craig Helmreich's nonprofit, and they give one artist every month enough money to have 10 hours of um, studio time at Postal Recording Company here in town. It's a wonderful studio, wonderful staff, and they uh, let you keep all the rights to what you make and don't tell you what you have to do with it. They, I. Uh, I like to say that I, I found a unicorn in Craig. So he like has a lot of money, but he's also a good person. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, uh, he's been a, a wonderful patron uh, of the, especially the Fountain Square scene, but a, a very like inclusive and diverse uh, and encouraging uh, community that's built around the Fourth Sunday Coalition. So we just recorded this song there. It'll be coming out later this year. I wrote it after some rather psychotropic meanderings through this Southern California desert. We went to Salvation Mountain out of, by Slab City, uh, if you're familiar. Uh, Leonard Knight crashed his hot air balloon in the desert, which you could just stop the story there. Um, <laughs> but he spent the next, uh, well, he spent the rest of his life building a mountain out of adobe and, and hay bales in the middle of nowhere, because God told him to. And, um, and emblazoned the entire thing with all this Dago paint and all these icons and, and sacrosanct religious iconography. And uh, just emblazoned at the top with this huge heart and it says, God is love. And it's just out there in the middle of nowhere, right on the corner of an anarchist commune beyond the rule of law. <laughs> it exists in the US of A right now. You can go. And anyone can. It's anarchists. Um, I wrote this song um, after that. Thank you. 
understand Careful as my dad in his garage I got you in the bed You smelled like cigarettes and rose water in this post-connection climate You go asking what my sign is When I tell you that's not science You get out of bed All at a temple in the badlands Outside a city Joshua Powell. Cheers. Joshua will be back in the second half with more music. Uh, and we're also going to have quest your questions for anyone on our panel. Uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Friends and family, welcome back to Lou Harry Gets Real. Uh, we'd like to thank the Aristocrat for sponsoring the Lou Harry Gets Real podcast. The, yes, please. Please. 
The lovely Oxford Room, named after the birthplace of its owner, is the perfect spot for so many types of gatherings with the same excellent service as the aristocrat restaurant downstairs. Formerly three studio apartments, the renovated area opened in 2014 and now features rich wood paneling, which honestly, I was talking to Joshua about before this whole thing started, how rich the wood paneling is in here. Uh, it really is. You have to see it in person. The richness does not translate in audio as well as it does. It's so rich that the democratic rich. debate, they're talking about taxing the wood paneling. Yes. That's how yes. rich it is. I, I only had one cupcake because the richness of the wood paneling made my stomach feel full all on its own. Uh, leaded and stained glass windows and fixtures, artwork, collectibles, all expertly curated by owner Rick Rising Moore. Let me tell you, uh, friends and family, the Oxford Room seats about 60 people, has audiovisual equipment, a full bar, private bathrooms, which is the way you want them, a separate entrance, and elevator access. You should have an event here, is what you should do, in the Oxford Room at the Aristocrat. We really, really appreciate them offering the Oxford Room as our home for this podcast. So, we hope you can come to one of our shows to check the room out, especially the new series that Lou is launching soon, or come out for any kind of occasion here at the Aristocrat and have a great meal. The Aristocrat has been owned and managed by Rick Rising Moore since 1969. Thank you, Jim. Um, and it w I would be remiss if I had Jim and Saldo here and didn't uh, invite him to, uh, to have some improv fun with you. So I am going to step away and turn the mics over to him. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim and Saldo. All right. Thanks. Uh, originally, I was going to do some improv, but I feel like Shannon uh, kind of gave me permission for this. So, uh, Valentine. No. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Uh, what I would like to do is uh, just improvise a quick story. So I would love if somebody would uh, come up here and let me read a story to them. Uh, you won't have to do a whole lot of work here. This is all on me. Um, but if I could read a story to someone, that makes it a lot more fun than just reading a story to myself. Anybody who would be willing to join me in this chair up here. We can edit this time out. <laughs> At any moment, great, great, oh yes, yes, no, don't go, please, come, do it, right there, yep, right there, excellent, yes, great, uh, what's your name? Catherine. Catherine, great, uh, Catherine, that's your mic, they told me that you can't get too close to it, and then I got too close to it instantly, so, good morning, uh, Catherine, good morning, that's what we say to each other when we get to work at five o'clock. Uh, Catherine, in a moment, I'm just going to pretend to read you a book from childhood that was your favorite book as a pretend child. It'll be a book that we've never heard of before, and uh, then we'll get through that, and we'll get back to the rest of the fun here. Does that sound okay? Sure. Great. Okay, so here we go. So, Catherine, uh, I, I got you your favorite book. Would you just hold on to that book? Great. Thank you so much. Uh, I, the thing is, I don't remember the title of the book. This was your favorite book because it was about a, what? What kind of creature? Or The Ugly Duckling. The Ugly Duckling, right. But this one was different than the traditional Ugly Duckling, right? Mm. This Ugly Duckling went to a special place. What was that? His mother. To his mother. And she was in a far-off land. What was that far-off land? Brazil. Right. This was the Ugly Duckling that goes to Brazil. <laughs> Uh, so if you'll open the, the front cover so I can read the front page. Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, once there was a duckling 
who was considered ugly by all those around her. And what was her name, Catherine? Shannon. Shannon, yeah. And uh, not only was, <laughs> it's a different Shannon. This is a, du this is a duckling. The other Shannon is human. This Shannon uh, was, so many of her fellow ducklings said mean things to her, right? Straight to her face. Like, what would they say, Catherine? You have a stinky butt. You have a stinky yes. butt, which is not nice for ducklings to say to each other. So uh, that combined with the hurt of an absent parent is what led Shannon, the ugly quote-unquote duckling, off in search of her mother, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, in the first place that Shannon, the ugly duckling, went after leaving the abusive ducklings uh, back at home was where? Where did she go? Minas Gerais. To Minas Gerais uh, from Brazil. the Lord of the Rings book? No, oh. Minas Gerais. It's the mining town in Brazil. It's the mining town in Brazil. I always confuse that with Minas Tirith, which is a location in the Lord of the Rings. They're similar, but, but this is a mining town in Brazil. But one is real. It's this one, one of them's real. Yes. We'll leave it up to the audience to decide which one that is. So Shannon the Duckling made her way to the mining town in Brazil, which of course had really uh, different noises than Shannon was used to back at the duck pond, right? So mm -hmm. wh what's one of those noises she would hear? Dynamite. Dynamite, exactly. <laughs> it, was, it was really creepy whisper dynamite. that wouldn't explode, it would just go, dynamite. <laughs> like, which is, if you think about it, more dangerous, right? Because regular dynamite, it's boom. Like, if you're unfortunate enough to be right near the regular dynamite, you don't have a chance. But if you're far away and you hear that loud explosion, you're okay. But dynamite, you might be next. You might walk by that, which is exactly what happened to Shannon. Yeah, she walked by the whisper dynamite, and she heard that sound, dynamite. And what happened? She was luckily behind the bulldozer. She was luckily behind the bulldozer, which took the brunt of the explosion, thankfully. And, you know, Shannon was toughened up from years of uh, verbal bullying and uh, <laughs> a hard workout regimen as a kind of a stress reliever that she built up a habit. So she, she was okay. Uh, so uh, having survived the explosion uh, by the bulldozer, what's the next place that she went to in the mining town in Brazil? The deep tunnel. The deep tunnel, that's right. You can't mine for things in Brazil without making a deep tunnel with dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon entered the deep tunnel and it got darker and darker and darker as she traveled down and she started to have some self-doubts, didn't she? Yeah, she thought to herself, what did she think to herself, Catherine? Where's that canary? Where's that canary? <laughs> because uh, if the canary's okay, I'm okay, right? But there was no canary, was there? It was just Shannon, alone with her thoughts in the deep, deep tunnel, listening for the whisper of dynamite. But thankfully, it never came. Instead, at the farthest reaches of her hearing, Sharon could, Shannon could hear this sound. What was it, Catherine? It was diamonds. It was diamonds. It was the sparkle of diamonds, which if you've never been in a deep, deep tunnel that gets super dark and you're listening for whisper dynamite, you might not hear the sound of diamonds, but what does the sparkling, the sparkling sound of diamonds sound like? 
No. <laughs> it's just a singular strike. Yeah, that's how you know the big diamonds are there. It's just a single ping. And Shannon went toward the sound of the sparkling diamond, didn't she? And in the unearthly glow of the cavern at the bottom of the deep, deep tunnel, in that faded light, Shannon saw... Her aunt. Her aunt. <laughs> which was nice, somewhat disappointing, because she was looking for her mom. And that's okay, Catherine. It's fine that it's not the mom, but it was the aunt. So close. So close is what Shannon, Shannon thought to herself. See, because all it takes is one strong connection with another adult to build resiliency in a young duckling like Shannon. And so she reminded herself, I'm super close. And so how did she greet her aunt? What did she say to her in that diamond? Where's my mommy? Where's my mommy? And Shannon's aunt, whose name was? Helen. Helen. Aunt Helen (laughs) turned to her and said, She's right. Under the bulldozer. Under the bulldozer. Uh, Yeah, that was a sad story. I can't believe you read that a lot as as a kid, Catherine. Is that why you dress all in black? It's the bedtime story that turned you goth. Well, Catherine, unfortunately that story didn't end so nicely, but the third book in the Ugly Duckling series picks up where that leaves off, and it all kind of goes better than that. But let's give Catherine a round of applause. Thank you so much. The dulcet tones of Jim and Saul, though. All right. Welcome back again to the show. I want want actually uh, Joshua and Shannon to come on up again. Uh, We have some questions. First of all, I wanted to uh, ask Joshua a little bit about the wonderful music that we heard in the first half. Another round of applause for that. Stop it. In in my intro to you, we read somebody else's sort of glowing, intricate description of your stuff. I'm curious, are we kind of more or less beholden than we used to be to sort of pigeonholing people into genres? How important is that now, and has that changed over the years? I would I'd definitely weigh in on the less less beholden than ever mm-hmm. uh, with the, the ubiquity and universality of the internet, uh, allowing people to find such specialized micro niches. When, when Jim told me that he did improv classes for free with kids on the spectrum, and I was just like, oh my, keep going. Like, <laughs> more. Uh, they're all named Bjorn. And <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> Um, I, uh, I alluded to earlier that like the older I've gotten, the more music that I realized, like, I was like, oh, I don't really care about reggae. And then somebody's like, Hey, but you have you heard this record? And I listened to him like, Oh my, I really like reggae now, you know? And then it's just a, a gateway. Um, and I think, you know, moving from, um, capture culture to access culture and uh, everything being accessible, uh, without you having to own it or have it or have the material there, you're allowed to just dabble more. Um, and so... Uh, there's so much. I was on the way here uh, listening to a playlist on Spotify of emo rap. And I was like, you know, emo, I'm thinking like this is like what I wanted to be in high school, but I couldn't because it was a private school. I'm thinking like my chemical romance and like, you know, black hair gel swoops. And then 
rap. Like I grew up in Florida, so I didn't learn about that until I was 18. Um, there just wasn't anything like that where I was. Mm-hmm. And um, so to find this like super bizarre hybridized, you know, genre that really has only sprung to the fore in the last like two or three years, uh, you can pretty much call music whatever you want. You got yeah. to find who likes it still, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've taught college courses on the music business. Is that harder because it's less, uh, you know, there seem to be fewer rules now in terms of, of, you know, what this kind of music is, what this kind of music is, how do you market that kind of music? Uh, what do you hope that the takeaways are from your students for, you know, a semester of uh, engagement in class? What should they get out of it? A great cue. Um, I've, I've only, I've, I think this is my fifth year teaching and the course material changes every year. There isn't a textbook for music business because it's not mm-hmm. static, it's dynamic and it's changing every single year. The way that a book shows is different from the way that a book shows five years ago. Um, stuff like um, some of the things that can like totally break a career right now, like a good uh, placement on a Spotify playlist. Who was talking about that like three years ago, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's tough to boil it down to um, any particular practical advice. The, the benefit that I have of, of working in like the rock side of the music industry and then teaching it concurrently is that I can come to my students after a week on the road and come back into the classroom and be like, so here's how I fucked up this week. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do this. Right? <laughs> and so as I, as I continue to learn uh, and, and try to show them that like, it's, you have to be open-minded, but I think more than, more than talent, more than education, um, I'm trying to instill in them uh, grit. Like entrepreneurial grit, because so many students where we were talking at the table earlier, like uh, some of these business principles, if you start talking about like an ROI or your market demographics, you see uh, the other hippies at the table, like eyes glaze over <laughs> and, you know, it's just not, it's just not punk to talk about. Yeah. It's just not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not yeah, cool to talk about. There used to be that stigma that if you are, if you're a true artist, yeah. then you're not thinking about business. You're not thinking about marketing or reaching it all, you know, you're creating and that's all you're about. When I hear an artist that's like, well, I don't really like to self-promote, I was like, well, no, you're, you're no, no one else is ever going to promote you. You have to promote <laughs> yourself first, and you have to get over that hump. Um, in a downloadable world now, is structuring an album different? I mean, it used to be that you know, people either listen to a single mm-hmm. or they listen to an album side, and an album side would have a certain character or a whole album, mm-hmm. for, for certain artists at least, would have a certain character. Is that different? Now as well? Um, not to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the music that's most popular uh, streaming right now is, is mostly hip-hop and Afrological-influenced music. That, um, because of playlist culture and because of um, streaming services, has moved back, uh, sort of like restoked the old singles method, because it's really just all about... Mm. Um, in a society where everyone's checking their phone not multiple times a day, but multiple times a minute, mm-hmm. um, if you're waiting three years between releases to really put together a cohesive work, then like no one's no one's going to be talking about right. it. And you have these artists that can just say, "Here's a song this month. Here's a song this month. Here's a collab we did here. Maybe here's a mixtape." Two years later, you drop an album, but you've been putting out things the entire time. Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit of a purist. Like we still make records because like. It's literature <laughs> to me, man. Like I want, you know, I want to, I want to bring you in and take you on a journey. But then, um, it, it, I think it depends on on what 
how you want to engage. What I mean, do you want to do? Do you want to book short stories? Do you want a novel? I'm a novel guy. You have literary references popping up in your work as Big much nerd. as musical references. Um, is there concern about hey, is everyone going to get this? Or, you know, the you know sometimes if you if somebody uses a word that's more than you know three syllables, yeah. the, the pretentious label gets slapped on. Is that of any concern or not? And how do you sort of incorporate? Where does that literary life come from? Pretentious is my brand. No, so there's an idea um, called semantic satiation that my uh, colleague Johnny and Carol and I talk about all the time, which is you know when you say a word over and over again, it starts to sound weird in your mouth, mm-hmm. and you wonder if you're saying it right. right. Like that's uh, there's a similar threshold in our minds when we encounter popular music, especially, and are going through it. And if you hear the same song several times, and it, it begins to just sort of hackney itself, it becomes cliche. And you can, a pop song might come out, and you'll listen to it a thousand times that week, and then maybe never again mm-hmm. because there wasn't layers of nuance. And so mm-hmm. for me, I'm writing songs mostly about like the cognitive dissonance of spirituality or like political dissatisfaction and stuff like that. Um, but I'm not trying to make everyone hate me immediately. Uh, I, I worked with the band to make the song such that if you just hear it and you're like, oh yeah, it's got a, it's, I like that, a groove tap your toe and you sit there later on, you go, wow, I wonder what that sound is. That's not a regular guitar. I wonder. And then like, listen number seven, you're like, did he just make, a, was that what I... You know, right. my favorite example of that that I kept secret for a long time, but <laughs> in the album credits of our 2015 release, Alyosha, I'm thanking all these people. And one of the people I think is uh, Hal Incandenza, um, who is not a real person. Um, but I had one fan come up to me like a year or two later. And she said, oh, did you think Hal Incandenza, the the character from Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace, and I was like, you found that, thank you. I was like, that was just there for you and me. It was really there for me, but now we get to share it together. It's like an Easter egg. How much of that is sort of deliberate and how much is random? I've I've talked before about the idea of serendipity and finding things accidentally. In the the town that I grew up in, uh, where we had a small library, and I would raid every drugstore book rack to look for books and stumble upon things that I wasn't looking for. And now, oh, what's Richard Brodigan? Okay, I'll read Richard Brodigan. And okay, wow, what's that in this 14-year-old brain? Um, how much of what you sort of you're reading deliberate and how much is you know, serendipitous? Um, the, my mom's an English teacher. Um, and I, I studied with... Um, like some of the most inf- the most influential people in my like education were always the always the English teachers and uh, the writing and poetry teachers. Um, I don't think you can be a good writer if you're not a good reader. Um, and so uh, when you're studying the craft and you're not just always being creatively generative, but you're also being annotatively analytical, and you're looking at those works and you're trying to dir- to to distill what makes this great, and then not how can I copy it, but how can I translate this principle and then sometimes that gets kind of almost uh self-serving in a way where it's like i'm gonna put this little reference in here you know but most of the time it's like well you're i'm i'm purposefully reading the stuff that i think is going to make me into the type of writer that i want to become Mm. interesting we're gonna we asked 
the uh, audience here to offer up some, some questions that we want to throw out to everyone on the panel. Um, and some of them is all, I'll twist for different members. For, this was directed for Shannon. Um, what was the most surprising performance in your years at the cabaret? What, was there a performer that surprised you either for audience reaction or did something different or? Well, it was the one we were talking about at dinner. Let's talk about that <laughs> a little bit. So, uh, that was, sometimes there aren't good there are surprises that aren't good surprises. And this was a not good surprise. And it was a singer-songwriter, um, not Joshua. Um, <laughs> it was a singer-songwriter who had too much tequila before the show and um, engaged in um, connection with the audience that was uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> like um, questioning someone's uh, private parts size in the front row <laughs> and uh, such. Um, and uh, the singer that he brought with them started crying because they were embarrassed about being with this person and was calling our agent trying to get out of the second night. <laughs> and so that was a big surprise. Yeah. It was a surprising performance. Yeah. Um, we did recover from it though. Did recover from it, and she came back. She came back. She came back. Not, but he with, did not. not with the singer's Not with the singer's yeah. songwriter. Uh, Jasmine, surprising venue or surprising audience at any given time where, you know, uh, there was a reaction you weren't expecting? Uh, I played in a haunted warehouse in Houston one time, um, and there was a, upon entry, there was a pile of Raggedy Ann dolls that was like a mountainous, there was these <laughs> paintings on the wall of people eating themselves, and I swear <laughs> to God, there was in the dark corner not around any other people, a little girl in a ballerina costume just dancing by herself. And I was like, what is this? Oh my, <laughs> what is this? Oh my God. There's no one to blame. I booked the shows. I didn't wow. research it well enough. That's either terrifying wow. or that was a hell of a ride on the bus to get it there. Was. One or the other. They well. told us after the show, they said, um, I know you're from out of town. You guys can sleep here in the venue if you want. I was like, no. Nope. <laughs> nope. Drove to Louisiana. I'm sure you've had a few surprises in improv shows oh yeah there was yeah. this one warehouse in Houston that asked me to dance in a tutu in the Joshua somebody uh, in the audience wanted to know your two biggest musical influences um, that would be um, if we're being honest uh Nah. <laughs> We're changing the name of the show. Lou Harry just makes up shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big announcement. <laughs> um, it's Neil Young and Kanye West. Um, and wow. people are usually just surprised by the Kanye West. Have they West, been seen in the same photo together at any particular time? I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. No, probably not. Yeah. Jim, comedic influences or musical? Oh, boy. Uh, the Carol Burnett show is huge oh, for me yeah. uh, growing up. And... Um, one of my favorite improv teachers talks about how there's like always two levels to a show. There's the story we're trying to create together, and then there's us as players together. Mm -hmm. And when both of those levels are working, that's when the show's genius. And that's what Carol Burnett taught me is like even the the show level can fall apart, but if we're having fun and with each other, um, then people will watch and have a great time. Shannon, musical influences. 
My yes. musical influences for me? Uh, no, who do you think Ruth Buzzy's musical influences are? <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Jim. Stay with the program. So I have a quirky musical influence that I really love, and it's a singer-songwriter named Susan Warner. Oh. Um, check her out, because she's really, really interesting. She's uh, a singer who has a lot of wry wit, mm -hmm. and I like people that have um, a different take on things. So uh, she's one of my musical influences. I, I, I can't think of others that I narrow down because there are so many great folks out there. Mm -hmm. so I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Susan singular focus. Oh, very good. People will go out and yeah. Google her, She's check out cool. YouTube. Uh, another for Shannon, which performer has given the most vulnerable presentation that you've seen? Oh. Mm -hmm. Or you know, let's not even do the or. I want to know about that. Most vulnerable. Yeah. Who do you think has been the most sort of here I am? I would say Alan Cumming. Mm. Gave the most vulnerable performance. Uh, you know, he's a, he's a specialist at Cabaret, obviously, so he does that. But he shared a lot of very deep personal things. Everyone knows him as the big, you know, guy that's mm -hmm. quirky and fun and um, hip. But he showed a lot of different sides to himself that night that were, were like a lot of comedy or a lot of people that are uh, big as life have a lot of pain that gets them to where they are. And he shared a lot of that, which was great. Uh, somebody want to know from me what has been my all-time favorite concert and why? Mm. Uh, I used to, when I worked at the shore in the summer, I would, I started in my, as soon as I could drive, I started to ask for, I got one day off a summer, and I would drive with a different friend each time to the Valley Forge Music Fair, one of those in the round theaters. And I mentioned before Arlo Guthrie, and I would see Arlo Guthrie with he, one time he was with Loudon Wainwright, another time with Dave Bromberg. Mm -hmm. Those Arlo Guthrie concerts were real connective for me. Uh, another was at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, torrential rains and listening to Coco Taylor and her blues machine. Um, <laughs> with you know half the people leaving, the rest of us just having a blast getting soaked and listening. The, the, I don't know if that was the greatest concert, but it was the most, the stuff that I can still feel, you know? Mm -hmm. Other great concerts you've seen. Oh, boy. I got to see the Ramones a bunch when I was younger, and that was informative and great for me, yeah. Great concerts? Um, saw Boney Bear at the Palace Theater in Louisville, and that's, you know, one of my favorite and also most influential artists. Yeah, ever. sometimes it's yeah. venue, too, you know, was, seeing Richie yeah. Havens in a tiny bar and, at the shore yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite that you've seen? I mean, you're not going to expect mine, but like, I'm a freak fan, like my husband of U2, <laughs> so we love U2, and so, but every one, every one of their songs is a cabaret to me. There we go. Huh. I would argue, I'd go out on a limb and say that the music to Spider-Man: Turn Off the Dark is incredibly underrated. It was a terrible show really? in New York. <laughs> if you've seen it, it was truly awful. But the music really sounds yeah, so much better than three quarters of what's on Broadway. <laughs> um, oh, Shannon. Was there initial hesitation uh, with creating the cabaret? People saying that uh, this is great, but there isn't an audience here for it in Indy, uh, whether that was because type of show or ticket price. Was there skepticism about whether Indianapolis would embrace those kind of shows? Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of people lost bets off of me because, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's a very niche kind of thing and nobody was really doing it. Now there's a lot of, you know, there's the White Rabbit Cabaret and Fine Season's gonna be coming and uh, Magic Thread, but yeah. at that time, I mean, heck, people don't even know what cabaret is. Yeah. So yeah. Um, for any of you, well, this would be obvious for you, but for either of you guys too, any example of how you 
uh, employed improv in your shows, either whether it was a show must go on dealing with a problem or um, changing things at the last minute because of something that happened that wasn't necessarily something that you dictated. I, no, so not so much musically, but performatively, I'm a big appreciator of Father John Misty because he, he embodies this ironic, self-depreciative, um, just really wry character that's lampooning his, himself and his own audience. So it's, mm. it's very metamodern and, and weird, but I write all these songs and, that are generally pretty dark and, and moody, and I do, as an artist, take myself seriously. But when I'm, especially in a one-on-one uh, sort of solo vibe, I find that not only like telling stories before the songs is going to draw people in and create a personal, but I also just am very, I'll, I do just try to be very silly and very vulnerable and make jokes off the cuff. And uh, it's so, I did a, a show in Nashville last week, only played four songs, and I talked just as long as I played. And I came off, and you get a lot of like, oh, great set, bro, and stuff. But this woman came up and she goes, you were. Hilarious. <laughs> and I was like, more like, of that. I don't care about the songs. Like, yeah. thank you. That's what I'm here. Yes. <laughs> Shannon, I know there were situations where early at the opening of the new, there was a time when the restrooms weren't working and you had to direct the whole audience to neighboring yes. locations. Uh, Any other, you know, uh, times when you've had to wing it as a performer or change We were just talking up? about, I, so I was talking about a different one before too. Uh, yeah, what, five minutes before the show started with uh, Norm Lewis, uh, the entire plumbing went out of the entire theater. And uh, we are next to the living room. Do folks know where the living, the living room is? It's, um, it's a different brand than the cabaret. Um, and so um, a great brand. It's just different brand. And so they were so gracious. They allowed every single person to go and use their bathrooms. The parade of um, 200 cabaret audience So 200 members. cabaret people. And one of, like, I think the men's bathroom is sort of... Um, two stalls with like a shower curtain that goes across. <laughs> and so even the Broadway star, we had to like kind of take him, and, you know, take him to it. And he really liked, he really liked it. But it was, it was kind of great to see these kind of um, worlds colliding and sharing space in an emergency too. It was, it was sort of fun to yep. see that kind of Other happen. times when have you, I mean, obviously every show is yeah. what's gonna happen now, but any particularly almost disastrous? Oh boy, yeah. Um, so I was in an improv troupe back in Connecticut where I grew up. Uh, this must have been the early 90s. And one of our members was the stage manager at the Oakdale Theater, which is an outdoor amphitheater with a stage in the round. And he somehow wrangled us a spot opening for Aretha Franklin and the OJs. <laughs> And if there is any audience that wants to see a group of six white guys do improv <laughs> less than the audience <laughs> at Aretha Franklin and the OJs, yeah. I have not encountered it. And the stage is in the round. So while we're feeling, like every few seconds, we see a fresh new face. Just like, mm. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. No. During, during stand, doing stand-up, I got a last-minute gig opening for Ernest Isley of the Isley Brothers <laughs> once, and they didn't announce that there was going to be an opening act, and boy, were they thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. It's rough stuff. Um, you want to hear some more music? Yeah. Let's hear some more music. Joshua, you want to... Can do. All right. You happen to have an instrument right there that'll yeah, help awesome. you create music. Super And before you do that, tell us, make sure we know where uh, you can be seen in the next couple of months. Absolutely. Uh, I was 
pleased that Holler on the Hill was on your radar. Um, we're the first band on the first day. Oh, fantastic! Um, and that was a that's a huge honor for us because um, it's all it's all other all the rest of the bands are national, and I was like, oh my god. Um, so uh, there's that, and then um, the Hi-Fi has resurrected after 10 or 11 years the Battle of the Bands that used to be at the patio. And oh. Normally I would scoff at the apparent commoditization of art <laughs> and turning it into a talent show to valid, you know, validate your merit or whatever, but, but then I looked at the people who are running it and I was like, yes, these are all the, the best, most taste-making people in our scene. Yeah. Um, there's 72 bands and oh three rounds. Gosh. It's every Wednesday from the beginning of October to the middle of February. And they're all at the Hi-Fi until the last show. It's at the Vogue. Um, and we're, our round one is on December 11th, so please come. I'm the worst musician in my band, I promise. <laughs> and uh, you can see all the bands, preach all the bands. Obviously, vote for us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, those are, those are the big ones coming up. Oh, and then uh, you can follow me and the band online, <clears throat> Facebook and Instagram.com slash Joshua Powell Music. Uh, it's Joshua Powell GTR on Twitter because the name is too long. Um... That's where I'm the funniest, because my mom's not on there very much. Uh. <laughs> I'm just going to share one more tune with you this eve. Um, this is also from our album Psychotropic, for those of you who are with us tonight at The Aristocrat. I have some copies out here if you're interested. This song's called Chakra Number Six.
Joshua Powell. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Lou Herring Gets Real. I'd like to thank producer Patrick Chastain. Audio engineer Miles Hall. Big thanks to the management and staff of our sponsor, The Aristocrat. Claps are great, so are tips. I also want to thank Shannon Forcell, of course. Joshua Powell. Jim Insaldo. Special thanks go out to Don Martin, Sergio Aragonez, Al Jaffe, Mort Drucker, and the rest of the gang of idiots at Mad Magazine. Thanks to Barbara Cook, Betty Compton, and Adolph Green, Alan Cumming, and all cabaret performers. Thanks to the creators of Now Hear This, and everyone, all of us, at the Golden Palace. Thank you for coming out. Uh, thanks to all those listeners to the podcast here and there. Thank you. Keep an open heart and an open mind. We'll see you next month.